0: In 1941, Iran was invaded by both Soviet and British armies during World War II. From the southwest, the British invaded, and from the northwest, it was the Soviets. But the middle part of western Iran was left to its devices and thus considered a free zone, and it was in this area, and at a time of weakness for the Iranian government, that the Mahabad Republic was founded. Welcome to the fourth and last history episode of our. Special Kurdish History Month series. This is the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. I'm your host, I am Gilles Schwani, and today's episode we're going to talk about the Mahabad Republic. Before getting into today's episode, I think it's quite important to note that Kurdish history of the 20th century is filled with so many what ifs from the Treaty of Sevres and Lausanne to the Ararat Republic, some Rebellions, Mahabad Republic. The Barzani rebellions, the PKK, the Kurdistan Regional Government of Iraq, and the Rojava Revolution. All of these what ifs in Kurdish history have left us wondering and thinking about so many scenarios. And just before I get into talking about the Mahabad Republic, I'm going to run through a couple of them with you so you can get the full scope, so you can appreciate the Mahabad Republic for what it was. So we're going to start off with some Kurdish history of Bakur, Northern Kurdistan, Turkey. After the First World War, the Kurds had a chance to create their own states, and this was under the Treaty of Sevres. However, due to Turkish pressure, the Treaty of Sevres was annulled, and replaced by the Treaty of Lausanne. And as the Turkish Republic was formed, one of the policies was focus on assimilation of non-Turks into Turkish culture as Mustafa Kemal who's given the name Ataturk meaning father of Turks. Being the president of the republic he believed that a unified nation culturally, linguistically and ethnically was the key to a strong stable Turkey. Quotes such as mountain Turks was widespread in Turkish society which made the Kurds seem like they weren't much different from the Turks, rather they weren't a different ethnicity but just an offshoot of the Turkish people. This, combined with slogans such as The Only Friends of Turks Are Turks, further added to the propaganda which was affecting the Turkish Republic's ethnic minorities namely the Kurds. One of the reactions, one of the reactions among many reactions was the Republic of Ararat or rather Ararat Republic whatever you want to call it. So the history of... The Republic of Ararat starts in October 1927, when a group of exiled Kurdish nationalists came together and founded a new party, and named it Khoybun, meaning independence. Khoybun would, in the following years, create a Kurdish movement, an insurrection against the Turkish Republic and attempt to create a new independent Kurdish state, the Ararat The rebellion in the Adarat Mountains was led by Ehsan Nuri Pasha, who was formerly an officer in the Ottoman Empire's army. And when the rebellion was able to carve out a border for the proposed republic, Khoybun appointed General Ibrahim Haski as the governor for the republic. However, the republic didn't survive for long, as in 1931, the Turkish government gained control of the area and crushed the rebellion. But I'm talking about Khoybun and not another movement, another rebellion, because because there was a difference. What was different about Khoybun's approach to this rebellion was that they organized like an army would and chose not to style themselves like Kurdish revolts of the past, which up until now was primarily led by a certain tribe or tribal chieftain. That was the difference. And again, I'm mentioning this because the Mahabad Republic was similar. It refused to be led by a tribal chieftain. And yet, despite all of this, even in a movement created and structured to move away from this kind of operation, from the tribal way of doing things, it seems that the tribes still played a major role. About this, Martin Van Brunsen says that despite this rebellion being the most nationalist, in a sense, of all Kurdish rebellions, the the tribes played a major role in the fact that many of the armies, many of the individuals, Who took part in those revolutions, in that rebellion, still listened to what their agas and their sheikhs and their chieftains, essentially, would tell them to do, what their religious leaders would tell them to do. So even though the movement was structured and made in a way to not work like previous rebellions, it still played a role. The tribal aspect still played a role. Now another Important movement and another important what if that I need to talk about is the barzani rebellions during the time of Qasim Hamad in the Mahabad Republic. Mela Mustafa barzani was in in a sense the military wing of the Mahabad Republic. It was through Mela Mustafa's three thousand or so men that Qasim Hamad was able to fend off Iranian attacks for. As long as he did of course soviet support uh, was also helpful and rojhalati kurds uh, making up their own armies of course that was helpful uh, important as well i'm not saying that but the presence of Mala Mustafa barzani's army in rojhalat at the time of the Mahabad republic was a very important asset to kazi muhammad and in this way the berzani rebellions was important to both rojalat eastern kurdistan iran and also bashur southern kurdistan iraq i mean the basis of the kurdistan regional governments was these rebellions that Mela mustafa berzani led in the 40s of course there's a lot more things you can attribute to that and i think you know uh, there needs to be more nuance in this argument of course but once again the berzani rebellions played a major role in the Iraqi government's acceptance, or rather willingness, to deal with the Kurds and their asking of autonomy. And again, I'm not saying that it was the sole reason, but rather it was an important reason for why the KRG came to be. And of course, to this day, the Barzani clan still plays an important role in Kurdish politics. And these what-ifs aren't really Exclusive to the 20th century is it's still fresh in our own memories, the Rojava revolution and the current situation of Rojava, where a Kurdish movement for self-determination has carved out a semi-autonomous region for the Kurds in Syria. So the whole uh, reason for me talking about all this is, uh, is just to give some context, that the Kurdish History is filled with these what-ifs. These what-ifs that had they gone a certain way or had they gone in Kurds' favors, we might be seeing a Kurdish state right now. But there is a common theme along all these rebellions, along all these movements. And as we talk about Mahabad, we're going to talk about those as well. But I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer. I'm going to get into... The Mahabad Republic now. So in 1941, Iran was invaded by both the Soviets and the British during World War II. This invasion was due to fears of Iranian sympathy for Germany as well as German operations in Iran. From the southwest, the British invaded, and from the northwest, it was the Soviets. But the middle part of Iran was left uninvaded and thus considered a free zone. And it was in this area. And at a time of weakness for the Iranian government, that the Mahabad Republic was founded with Soviet assistance. So, really, it was during this occupation that the Kurds saw an opportunity to rebuild and gain control of their territories. And again, this is one of the first main themes. Uh, usually, it is during the weakness of a central government that the Kurds find an opportunity to self-determine, to take control of their lands. We saw this in Syria with the Arab Spring and Rojava forming. We saw this in Iraq as the central government fell, Saddam Hussein was killed in 2003. And right now we're seeing it in Mahabad. And if you go through all these what ifs, this is a common theme. Now the Kurds had two very different relationships with the occupying powers. On the one hand, the Soviets were friendlier and more supportive of Kurdish nationalist ambitions. They they lend the hand in some ways. But it was, again, I'm gonna get into this later, but it was for their own benefits, of course. On the other hand, the British more or less tried to appease the wishes of the Iranian government and offered less support to the Kurds. Despite this, though, the British were not exactly hostile to the Kurdish people and their occupied territory in Iran, in Roshalat, in eastern Kurdistan. So In 1943 the Kurdish political organization known as Komala became active once again having been first founded in the 1930s. And unlike most Kurdish movements of the past, but similar to Khoybun which we talked about earlier, Komala aimed to move past tribal leaderships. And instead they wanted to give membership to Kurdish notables and intellectuals. And this was actually quite positive, because it made Komala very popular very quickly. And not only in eastern Kurdistan, in Rojalat, but also in, uh, in Bashur and in Bakur. So in southern Kurdistan, Iraq, and uh, northern Kurdistan, Turkey. And branches of the organization functioned in both those parts of Kurdistan as well as Rojalat, And they are actually still active to this day. And in 1944, The USSR opened the Kurdistan-Soviet Cultural Relations Society, and this was mainly used by Komala as a place to have their meetings. And while all of this is happening, while the Soviet is doing all this, the British still had a neutral position, they had a neutral kind of stance on the Kurds in Iran, mainly because of fears of a Turkish reaction. Now Turkey, as we know, has a very large Kurdish population, the northern part, part of Kurdistan is there. And they were concerned that a strengthened Kurdish presence in Iran would urge their own Kurds to revolt. And taking this into account, Britain remained neutral and did not support Kurdish rebellions in Iran. Because they did not want to give Turkey a reason to respond with cooperating with Germany during World War II. And another reason for British neutrality Towards the Kurds in Iran and Rojalat was their unwillingness to work with the tribal system and the tribal conflicts that the Kurds seemingly had to deal with every day. Even for Kazim Hammad and Komala and the Kurdistan Democratic Party, which formed later, the tribal system was something they spent a lot of time trying to reform, and the Kurds themselves they acknowledged this problem. They knew this problem. In Komala's publication called Nishtiman, Their first edition published the following announcement You, Agas, and leaders of Kurdish tribes, think for yourselves and judge why the enemy gives you so much money. They give it to you because they know it will be capital that would delay the liberation of the Kurds and hope that in a few years this capital will create intrigue that is detrimental to the Kurds. So, the Soviets are gaining influence over the Kurds in in Iran. And the British obviously, they're not too happy with this. I mean, yes, they are allies during the war, but you know, you don't want another power to have so much influence over you when you don't know what that power in the future might do. So, at this time, the British reached out to the government of Iran to see an end to the Kurdish uprisings and Iran's Kurdish problem. And they actually suggested that Iran decentralize its power. So basically to give the kurds more freedom and autonomy and they thought that would in some ways fix the kurdish unrest but the iranian government was kind of unwilling to do this because they feared that a decentralized political power would weaken the government too much and of course the british had yet more reasons for why they did not want to see a stronger a stronger eastern kurdistan because they feared that the Autonomy given to Kurds, or rather, strength given to Kurds in Iran would encourage Kurds in Iraq. I mean, Iraq, up until then, was... I think it was being decolonized during that time, but they were still a British puppet, you know? And, you know, Iraq had a, has a large Kurdish minority, again, Bashur, South Kurdistan, and they had experienced many Kurdish rebellions within their borders, And they were concerned that the continuation of those events would make things very difficult for the Iraqi government and would make things very difficult to keep Iraq as one. So that was something that the British were very worried about. They knew that appeasing the Kurds in Iran would most likely also mean appeasing the Kurds in Iraq. And they did not want that. They wanted to have the region be stable because that's more that was more in their favor at the time. So a good representation of what British policy was like toward the Kurds at the time in Iran can be seen when Hamar Rashid, a Kurdish tribal chief, visited the British Embassy in Baghdad and asked the British for their protection against the Iranian government. But the British told him that it is actually better for him and for the Kurds to negotiate with Tehran, the Iranian capital. Rather than ask for British protection. And they also said that the Brits would not take military action against the Kurds if the Kurds did not prevent British war effort. So the British were basically saying, listen, we're not gonna we're not gonna fight the Iranians for you. Go negotiate with the Iranian government. But that doesn't mean that we're gonna attack you. No, we're not gonna attack you so long as you don't hamper hinder, and stop our efforts to win the war. So basically it was, uh, I'm not going to do anything if you don't do anything. And uh, we'll let you be and let you do what you want to do. That was basically the main message. But there was another power, as I mentioned earlier, the Soviets. And the Soviet relations with the Kurds were actually very different as they offered more protection to the Kurds in their occupied territories in Iran And they also seemed to develop ties with them. And this can be seen in some of the the work they did. As in 1941, 30 Kurdish notables were invited to Soviet Azerbaijan. And even as the Kurds rebelled against Iranian authorities and Soviet occupied Iran, the Soviets did not really help the Iranians against the Kurds. They didn't seem to care. But the way they explained their inaction was that they did not want to interfere with Iran's local affairs, which is—it's <laughs> an excuse at best, if you ask me. But hey, you know, politics is politics. So, and they—they they were helping the Kurds. So, who am I to complain? <laughs> and soon after that, the Kurdish Soviet ties grew in Iran as the as the Soviet Union began to support uh, the activities of Komala, unlike the British. And unlike the British, they were willing to work with the Kurdish tribal system and even approach tribal leaders to lead the Kurdish national movement. And so, this is when the reality of Mahabad starts to fall into place. It's the Soviets' aid and help that makes Mahabad a reality. Without the Soviet help, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have no doubt, that the Kurds in Rojhalat, Qazi Muhammad and uh, the people of Komala, and later the KDP, I have no doubt that they were willing to die for Kurdistan and Qazi Muhammad and many others did. But without the Soviet help, Mahabad would have never existed in the first place. And that is going to be important later on. And so as the Soviet influence in Iran and in eastern Kurdistan, Rojhalat grew, Kazim Muhammad the legendary Kurdish leader Kazim Muhammad he was admitted to Komala he was brought into Komala under Soviet insistence and very quickly he became the face of Kurdish nationalism in Iran and this was followed by the creation of the KDP which was led by Kazim Muhammad and the weakening of Komala and after the creation of the KDP they issued a list of how the KDP would work, and what their requirements were, what their wishes were, and this list was actually it was progressive in certain ways and nationalistic in certain ways, so uh, among the let's say bullet points of the list was that the Kurdish people of Iran must have freedom and autonomy in the administration of their local affairs and achieve autonomy within the borders of the Iranian state so it was not calling for it was not calling for autonomy. Oh, sorry. It was not calling for independence right away. It was actually about autonomy. And they also said that the Kurdish language should be or shall be used in teaching, and it should be and shall be the official language of administrative affairs within, within their regions. Um, they also said that uh, there should be a single law for both peasants and uh, people of higher castes of society. So, people, notable individuals in society, that there should be a single law that applied to both of them, which, you know, to us might sound pretty common sense. But consider that this is trying to reform a tribal culture, a tribal society, which Kurdistan in many parts at the time was. Now, uh, this is the pr- progressive side of it that I'm talking about. It says that the Kurdish Democratic Party will make a special effort to establish unity and complete brotherhood with the Azerbaijani and other peoples who are in Azerbaijan, Assyrians, Armenians, etc., in their struggle. So, this was, you know, what I meant earlier, and why I thought khoibun was relevant to this, because, you know, it, it it's a political movement, it's not a tribal movement, you know. They're trying to make Kurdistan, or at least that part of Kurdistan, they're trying to make sure that it operates according to political laws and not tribal laws, which is quite admirable. And this was done with the leadership of Qazi Muhammad. And it was also during this time that Mela Mustafa Barzani of the Barzani tribe, as I mentioned earlier, arrived into eastern Kurdistan, Roshalat, after being exiled from Iraq due to the revolts he had led against the Iraqi government. Barzani, along with 3,000 others of his fighters, were all experienced in war and were sufficiently armed. And he joined Qazi Muhammad's KDP, the Kurdistan. Democratic Party bringing his people with him. And as the Kurds under Qazi Muhammad were building up, the Soviets also supported an Azerbaijani rebellion against Iranians in Iranian Azerbaijan. And they led their own rebellion in 1945 and declared themselves independent. And when Azerbaijan defeated the Iranians in Tabriz, Qazi Muhammad declared Mahabad independent. And within a month, they set up their parliament and voted Qazi Muhammad as president of the new republic. So now we're in 1946. We're in 1946 and the Mahabad Republic is now formed. Azim Muhammad is the president and they're being supported by the Soviets. And immediately Mala Mustafa Barzani and his army are sent to the city south of Mahabad to liberate the Kurds from Iran and incorporate them into the republic. And almost immediately after the declaration of independence, Iranian pressure was mounting on Qazi Muhammad and his warriors, who from then on in were called Peshmerga. Kurdish for those facing death. And I believe that was the first time the term Peshmerga was used for Kurdish fighters, at least in the modern era. And the Peshmerga largely comprised of Barzani's men and fighters from 60 different tribes across eastern Kurdistan, across Rocholat. They were good fighters. And they defeated the Iranians many, many times in many battles in the beginning. But as World War II ended, and supplies dwindled, and the occupation of Iran came to a slow end, and the promised Soviet support never came, and then the Soviet Union also withdrew from Iran, that marked the beginning of the end for the Mahabad Republic. It ended almost as quickly as it started. And in December 1946, Iran regained control of Mahabad, and the Republic was dead. That is the sad story of the the Republic of Mahabad. Now of course there are many reasons for why it was so short-lived, but the truth of the matter is, just like I said in in the first history episode, some parts of it was because of Kurds not being able to cooperate, and some parts of it was because of outside influence. So the reason for the Soviet and British invasion of western Iran it was you know it was because of World War II I mean in 1939 German and Iranian relations began to grow as the Germans seemed to increase their influence in the Middle East and the Iranians saw Germany as a good trading partner but when the war started Iran was under increasing pressure from Britain and the Soviet Union to expel Germans from Iran But despite this pressure, Iran maintained a neutral position during the war and continued its trade with Germany. And this became a major problem for the British and the Soviets in 1941, as Germany invaded parts of the Soviet Union. So the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran began in that same year, with the Soviets occupying the Northwest, as I mentioned, and the British invading the Southwest. So, you know, this was the reason for the Soviets and the British coming into Iran. So an alliance with the Soviets was never going to last too long despite everything that you know that they might have promised. They were just trying to strengthen the Kurds against the Iranians long enough to weaken the Iranians and hence not allow them to work with the Germans. That was the main thing for them. That was the main thing. And uh, sadly, the Kurds sort of fell for that. And we we took a big defeat from that. Now, there is another argument for the Soviet position at this time. I mean, the argument says that the support that the Soviets provided for the Kurds and the Azerbaijanis in Iran was due to wanting to have a strong position against Iran when the time would come to withdraw. I mean, the Soviets always knew that a withdrawal was inevitable. They had to withdraw at some point. But when they did, they wanted to have a strong position. They wanted to hold their cards against Iran. And this was sort of backed up by the fact that despite the British and the Soviets agreeing to a military withdrawal from Iran, the Soviets remained in Iran after the war, and they wanted oil concessions from Iran. So they wanted oil and money from Iran after the war. And the Mahabad Republic, really not seeing the position of the Soviets and what they were trying to do, Left them in a vulnerable position. It left them vulnerable to the decisions that was not within their power. This was sort of the main cause of their collapse after the Soviet withdrawal. And this is another one of those themes, those patterns that we see throughout these what ifs of Kurdish history. I mean, go to Rojava in 2019, October 2019, and they were left vulnerable by a decision made by the US that was not within. The Kurds' power. Uh, same thing in in Bakur in uh, northern Kurdistan in Turkey during the time of the Treaty of Lausanne, the Kurds, you know, they were left to rot by the Western powers. And again, it was a decision that the Kurds had no power over. And similarly, you can see that here in uh, Rojalat during the time of the Mahabad Republic. Now, of course, this is not everything that you know that caused what happened. Another reason for the dramatic collapse of the Mahabad Republic is tribalism. In Mahabad, despite the support of an international superpower, you know, the Soviet Union, Kurdish tribalism still played a role in its downfall among other reasons. When the Soviets withdrew from Iran and the Kurds had to defend against the Iranian army, many of the tribes which Qazi Muhammad had reached out to, refused to come and help the Kurdish Republic. I mean, many of these tribes they refused to come under the power of the KDP and Qazi Muhammad at a time when Kurdish unity was most needed. And in fact, some tribes even offered their help to the Iranian government and even declared their loyalty to the government in an attempt to put themselves in a better position, disregarding the Kurdish national, national sentiment. So, I think what to take away from the story of Mahabad is the republic was formed and founded based on the actions of foreign powers. It was founded when the Soviets and British invaded western Iran and the Iranian government was in a weak position and could not fight back, giving the Kurds an opportunity to rule themselves. And it crashed and was destroyed when the Soviets and the British withdrew from Iran and and the Iranian government once more had power and could come and regain control from the Kurds. And also, that regaining of control was made easier by Kurds themselves not being united among each other. Really, the story of Mahabad for me, is very important because at the end of the day, it is the story of all of Kurdistan. And that was one of the reasons for why we wanted to leave it to the end And for the last episode of Kurdish History Month, because the short lived Republic of Mahabad can explain to a large extent why Kurdistan is the way it is. We might have charismatic leaders like Qazi Muhammad, and we will dedicate an episode to talking about him specifically sometime in the future, but we might have leaders like Qazi Muhammad, and we we might have nationalistic sentiments, and we might want freedom, independence, and We might want to be unified as a nation. But none of it matters when, at the end of the day, we're willing to sell out our people to the governments we're fighting just so that our tribe can be in a better position. If the story of the Republic of Mahabad is not enough to want to bring an end to tribalism in Kurdistan, nothing ever will be. I am not trying to be preachy here, but that's just the truth of the matter. We should learn from Mahabad. Thank you for listening to this episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast, and thank you for listening to us throughout the Kurdish History Month and Kurdish History Series special. You can go to our Instagram to check out more of what we do at WHLW under-Kurdistan. I've been your host, I'm Gilles Schwani, and I hope you all have a great week.